the better technical foundation you have, the better you can listen. Because mm-hmm. if you've got a good technical foundation, somebody with a different opinion, it's not a threat to your entire role on the job, your authority, your if you can properly say, like, I understand this, but if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And this, even though this guy is a jerk, if he's right, because I already have a good technical foundation, I'm already confident in myself. Being wrong about this one thing doesn't kill my soul. It doesn't humiliate me. Even if he wants to humiliate me, I'm not humiliated because I have a good technical foundation. And I was asking the right questions before I came up with a with a solution. It free a better technical foundation frees you to be more open-minded to these types of things. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, it's a little bit different. I'm actually joined by a co-host, our uh, new member of the Monograph team, uh, Chris Morgan. But we're both very excited to be interviewing Christine Williamson, the ringleader uh, behind Building Science Fight Club, one of my, just I just love the name so much, and we might dive into a little bit about that. Thank you so much, Christine, for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be doing this. Yeah. This You're is... teaching me more on Instagram about how the question and answer features work and maybe inspiring me to explore and use the tools available to me better. Chris definitely has that down almost to a science. Are you, the, are you the Instagram guru? I am, yeah. He knows all the algorithms. So I think, I think it'd be helpful just to start off, just to set the context, is maybe you can give us a thumbnail highlight reel of who you are, how did you get to Building Science Fight Club? So my background is in architecture. I went to architecture school, but I started focusing on building science pretty early. I was still in school, actually. The first job I took was working for a really fantastic architect in New York City who put me in the field a lot. Like really primarily, I would say I was in the field. I was in the office a lot too, but I was in the field all the time and I loved it. I loved the kind of magic where the design actually meets the physical way that our buildings come together. I just thought it was magic and it was really interesting to me. I also just liked being outside. It was nice. It was great. Also, our office was like a lot of, I think, architecture firms. It was sort of, it was AutoCAD and it was the black background and it was a cellar. The office was in a cellar in New York City on the lower level. It was really dark. So it was like this dark cocoon of architecture and design. And then I loved being out of the office also to uh, enjoy that. Also, our architect I was working for, Chris Benedict, super, super passionate about environmental responsibility. And so that was cool professionally to work on really, really energy efficient buildings. But she is wanted to make her life and her business consistent with her principles. So our office had no heat and no air conditioning. It was in New York City. So, I mean, it wasn't no heat. We had body heat and we had the waste heat from uninsulated plumbing pipes for the rest of the building. So someday, and she knew then some days were just too cold to work. So the office would be closed. You get to stay home. Too cold to work. Or in winter, it's too hot to work, the office is closed. But she viewed that trade-off, that productivity trade-off as being worth it from an energy conservation standpoint. To this day, I think, I mean, we keep in touch. 
her office is a little bigger now. It's the next seller over, but I'm pretty sure she operates the same way and is still very efficient. It was very cool, but I'd like to get outside also. I'd go down to the coffee shop down the street. It was on um, East 9th Street. If anybody knows Mud Coffee in, in New York City, great little coffee shop. They had this other, like a pipe with a rope around it, their hot water pipe with this thick rope around it at the front of this, like where you order. And I'd go in and I'd, I'd hug the pipe because I was so cold. <laughs> They'd make me a hot chocolate because I don't like coffee. And anyway, it was a good time. But that's, I started getting into building science there. And, and ultimately after graduation, started working on the consulting side of the business. So I was in the field a lot. And as I advanced, and also in a, in a consulting capacity, especially being in the field, you see a lot of different types of jobs. So you're getting like the number of projects that I was exposed to was much, much greater than most of my architecture school classmates who are working on one project and they're seeing it all the way through and they're, they're having to learn about all kinds of things. And I was focusing just on the enclosure on a lot, a lot, a lot of projects, different, bigger projects, smaller projects, So that gave me a different kind of experience than my classmates. And I started to post stuff on Instagram from job sites. Like I'd take a picture and I'd mark it up and I'd post it. And it was really for my friend, like people I actually knew. And it was sort of like a, I don't know, like all the ARE study groups that come up with, like, this is something hard. How can we help each other any way we can? How many of us going through the ARES get Dropbox links for like people's study notes and stuff? Like I've got study notes from ARES like way old. So it sort of was like, what can we do to help each other? And that was my contribution. And it grew from there to become much bigger than it is now. I think last night we ended up, or I ended up crossing the 70,000 follower threshold which is crazy. I remember when it was like, I consciously thought at the beginning, like when it first started to be people I didn't know following along, I was like, whoa, 20 people read what I wrote. Wow. <laughs> and now it's seven. I almost can't even wrap my mind around it. It's crazy. But I'm delighted that it's been so beneficial to a lot of people. That's um, been an unexpected joy. Do you remember the first detail that you did the first time, like the first condition that you were like, you know, I I want to uh, upload this? I don't actually. I think it started more like with definitions because this also confused me a lot of times, like even terms that people use a lot, like flashing. I was always sort of like afraid to ask, but like, well, what exactly is flashing? Like what counts as flashing? Does it have to be metal? Can it be made out of something else? Like, is it only at windows? And like, what counts as flashing? And like, I thought that even, I mean, I was years out of school and still kind of fuzzy on what the actual definition of that was. So I started with sort of a definitional idea of this. Like I would take a picture of a pier or a building element. So this is what it actually I mean, that one is not like, you know what a pier is, but you don't always know what it actually looks like and what the tops of piers look like. They're finished a whole variety of ways and like just making that connection. So that's how it started. It was more like marking up a photo, not to really explain all of the technical principles at play or like, this is why this design is, works the way it does, or here's something that makes it more risky versus less risky. That came later. At first, it was more like, this is what this is. And, you know, here's the flashing. It's this thing. I find it fascinating. It's like what you, your first 
attempts were, or just the first types of content they were making were probably a new format in general for, I mean, what you've traditionally seen in Instagram yeah. is mostly like the finished product, like the rendering. It's not this kind of in process or maybe the way you're describing it, it's not necessarily in process, but it's like this kind of just informational aspect right. Here, right? of just like right. making the annotation. I'm wondering- I do filter the photos though, which is hilarious to me. I, every time I do it, I'm like, yeah, I'm filtering- I'm not like eliminating the wrinkles on my forehead. I'm still doing a construction photo. <laughs> you like give it like a, the Instagram, like 70s. And... I mean, we're visual people. We like yeah. for stuff to look good. So yeah, that's good. That's true. I'm curious if the name Building Science Fight Club kind of comes from what you were talking about, this inherent community in a way, like that first, just might make it for your friends, right? Yes. You, yeah. Even thinking about that, um, people trading notes on ARE exams or like yeah, bootleg yeah. videos, right? To the Dropbox link, which is always bootleg. But yeah, like, is that the kind of sense of the camaraderie that you're sort of expecting that, that the fight club approach? Yeah, I, I mean, it really started as a joke and I really hadn't thought it through. Like it wasn't a metaphor I took or really, that I really unpacked a lot. It was just a joke and it was intended to be a sort of a, a camaraderie of nerdiness and like, just a pretty narrow professional interest. So there was that element. It was meant to be a little bit playful. I got a little, I increasingly become, as the account got bigger and bigger, I increasingly became a little bit uncomfortable with it because I wasn't sure that that was really the playfulness of the name wasn't really understood by some mm. of the, now these people who follow it are I'm sure unaware of the Brad some of them are unaware of the Brad Pitt <laughs> Edward Norton movie oh that's true like they're that's not their thing that's not their generation they don't know it that's and true. they just they think it's maybe well here's someone who really likes this topic and she likes to debate it or argue about stuff and that's not the intent so I actually asked a couple weeks ago I was like should I keep the name because I could change it to something else I don't know it could be, be something else and people were like, no, you've got to keep the name. We love the name. I also was kind of conscious at the beginning. I liked the idea of the club. And one thing I did think of at the beginning was I, I was very conscious and deliberate about not calling it like building science chick or sure. you know, yeah. building science girl. Or I didn't want something that was, I guess, two things. Like one, I didn't really want it to be just about me. And then two, I didn't want it. To, although it is about me. It's my, it's, and that's okay. It's, these are my opinions. And I think that's kind of good that it's transparent that way, but I didn't want it to be like celebration of a woman in a technical yeah. field for its own sake. I wanted it to be about the club, about what yeah. it is that we're trying to do, not about the identity of the person who has the account. Right, right, right. And like Fight Club, I mean, for those that might not be aware in the attendance, Fight Club is a as a movie and book, it's a very aggro male take on sort of rebellious, these men who find both unity. It's a very polemic movie in its own right, but I think the movie gender gives it a sort of gender topic, right? But the way that Building Size Flight Club is, at least the way I understood it, or I look at it as more, I saw it more in the kind of unifying sense of like the bonds that are formed uh, yeah. through the work, right? Or in this case, through the yeah. film. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think that I personally love the name. I think I'm getting some people here in the comments that are saying that, that it's an awesome name. I think the tension for those people that might be aware of the movie is part of also the fun of it. Uh, yeah. The, the yeah. two contrasting images. So yeah, no, don't change it. Don't change it. It's really good. Good. All right. I, I won't. Anyway, it's for fun anyway. If 
people really don't like it, that's okay. It doesn't, not everybody has to like it. Let me bring in one of the audience questions, which was because we're kind of talking about the fight itself in the comments. Can you think of the best and worst of all time comments that you've received inside the the comment section? Uh, I've gotten some really funny ones. I've spoken about this one before. I still remember it. It was, I was on vacation actually. And the account had really just gotten kind of quite a bit bigger. And I posted a video and the comment, it was one of the first videos I posted. It's still on, still up there. The comment is not, I deleted it, but it was that some guy commented, he counted the number of times I blinked in the video and said that that was too many. And I realized I watched it back and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I really, I was blinking a lot. It was kind of a nervous blink. But I actually ended up asking my eye doctor about that at my next visit. I was like, do I blink too much? And anyways, they do a test and I actually do, in fact, have dry eyes. So I have eye drop, like medicated eye drops that I take thanks to this stupid comment for my nervous blinking. So I think about that one sometimes, which is, I mean, the guy was being a total jerk about it, obviously, but I mostly get um, yeah, block and bless in the comments. That's right. I mean, mostly it's not stuff like that. I've gotten a few that are like that. The comments that are critical are fine with me. I think they're actually great. I really, really appreciate it when people can disagree and they do so even strenuously because part of what's valuable about the account is the discussion. Mm. And if we can't disagree strongly, the signal to other people watching that, that tells you valuable stuff. It tells you how important, like if you and I disagree on something and I say, yeah, we disagree, but to each his own, I can see your perspective. Maybe that's, if that's really true, then that's fine. That tells you about a little bit about the nature of the disagreement. But if we disagree and I tell you, no, I wholeheartedly disagree. I disagree for these specific reasons. And I think that you are wrong and that the wrongness of your position has the following implications. And I consider those serious. That communicates something entirely different. And if in the name of respect, we didn't respect each other enough to have that kind of honesty then and glossed over it, then people watching that would not would be ill-equipped to then deal with the condition when they come across it in their professional practice. But one of the things that I know, I know we hate doing this is going to a job site and being blindsided about a decision. Like if you draw something and you think that it's eminently reasonable and achievable and you get to a job site, you want to know in advance is what I'm asking, is it really reasonable? You don't want to get to the job site and have the contractor be like, you moron, under no circumstances am I going to be able to build that? Like, you want to know where you are on that scale. Like, even if you disagree with me, at least you'll know, okay, this is something that's controversial. And knowing that it's controversial is a signal to, okay, I need to understand this more. I need to go seek out other information or other voices. So the disagreement, all of that is to say that the disagreement matters and I really, really value it. But I obviously think that it's completely ludicrous and awful when people comment on your, like the number of times you blink or what you're wearing or like silly stuff, but mostly people don't do that. <laughs> mostly people yeah, but- are awesome. One of the things that is really fascinating about what you're talking about too is 
we talked a little bit about how there's new mediums by which people are learning, right? It's like inst- your Instagram account is one channel. People are learning now through YouTube on different topics about job site all the way to, you know, studying for the ARES on the other side of the spectrum. But the way you talk about the discussion, it's almost like it's a simulation of something you're going to be able to see on site, right? It's like you're right. learning yeah. through that exchange, you're absorbing it and gaining confidence to be able to answer that that question. And I find that it's just something that we talk about internally a lot about how the practice has changed through education, right? There's no more the apprenticeship model sort of different part of your IG account is almost like an apprenticeship model between you and the followers. And them and me, really, like it's through that exchange. One of the things that has made me a lot better at my job, apart from in the real world, apart from Instagram is exactly that is knowing like what's common and what's not common and learning more about the nuance of professional practice in other parts of the country and even other parts of the world. Like that's better. Like it makes me a lot better. It makes me do things a lot, but it makes me better able to communicate my design intent to other people. If I kind of go into it, knowing what their assumptions and particular biases might be, helps me articulate that stuff better. It's really, it's helped me in the same way that it helps other people. Those conversations are really helpful. I gave a presentation a few, um, a few years ago. I remember because it was one of my first ones and I was talking about installing windows or how to detail windows. And I basically had a PowerPoint of like some window details. And I was like, so basically you do this and then you do this and then you do that. I was just showing the details and I didn't even know what to say about it because it was like, was I insulting the audience? They have window details in their projects too. Why do they need my... Like, I wasn't sure. I didn't know what is it that most people struggle with here. And when you know what people struggle with, you can explain things from the beginning better. But I didn't have a sense of that. Like, what trips people up a lot? What objections do they get in the field the most often that they feel ill-equipped to answer? Like, what... Anyway, it gives... So Instagram, weirdly, has given me a much better starting point for maybe not so weirdly for teaching in the field and for not just teaching for teaching's own sake, but I guess communicating in the, over the course of doing an actual job, like how are we going to do this? How are we going to think this through as a design team? Anyway, like what's going on in the comments and like this simulation of the negotiation that happens on site. It's one thing to be working in the drawings, but then to be prepared for, the moment when you have to confront the contractor, have to confront the construction team. Right. And there a lot of, you know, working partners on site are very good at uh, being convinced. And it seems like their domain, but this kind of leads into a really great question about the difference between soft and hard skills in building science and, you know, between architecture and construction. What is your sense on this? Maybe I'll read it exactly. Is it soft skills, communication, relationship management, leadership, or hard technical skills, detailing, construction knowledge, et cetera, that truly help de-risk the construction process? It's the technical skills. Like it just is. I mean, this isn't to say that communication and leadership and even just having a personality that facilitate like that's pleasing, that makes people want to work with you. Those are all very helpful things. But you can be easy to work with and good at communicating and all kinds of other things. But if the content, if what you're communicating is incorrect or risky or whatever, then you're going to have a problem regardless of whether or not the other stuff is done right. And I think, unfortunately, culturally, that 
message isn't really adopted. And I think maybe it's different for us because we're in a profession that actually is in large part technical. So some things are not this way. They are more subjective. Other professions don't rely on the same underlying principles of, as a technical profession. But yeah, this stuff really matters. Like I, I'm not, I don't care how good my doctor is at billing or communicating. Like I care, can he do the surgery? I mean, that's a more extreme example, but the underlying skill has to be there. And I think that we don't focus on it because we're a lot of times we're afraid of it. It's this sort of black hole. And we also overestimate the difficulty and the importance of what we don't know a lot of times. Like any, I, everybody does this or a lot of people do this, I guess. Anything I don't know how to do, I put it at the bottom of my to-do list. And then it takes on this outsized fear in me. And when you go and figure it out, it ends up being not that, not that bad. But no, there has to be an underlying framework. And that's one of the things that I really am very passionate about helping people develop a framework for understanding performance and risk so that when they are contending with a contractor who seems really, really sure that they know how to confidently respond to that. And it's okay. Like when you don't know, you end up doing two things. Like when you're not sure of the technical stuff, you're either compliant because you don't want to be humiliated or you're too conservative or you say no to stuff that actually is genuinely a really good idea and might make the job more efficient, more perform better, cost less money. Like you miss out on opportunities if you have to be too conservative because you don't understand the physics of what's going on. So, and you don't want to be either of those things. So if you have a good technical understanding, I think it makes things a lot better. That happens to me all the time too. I was on a, was recalling last week, I was working on a particular detail with um, a colleague and it involved, they poured the concrete too high on something. And my recommendation to my colleague was just tell them to grind it off. And he was like, I don't know about that because he knew he was anticipating the pushback he was going to get on the job site. I told him a story about, I was working on a tower in Austin, Texas, and you know how drains like in plaza decks and stuff that have that dome on them and a clamping ring and they attach the dome and the clamping ring to the, the drain is multiple parts and they attach it all together. So they don't lose the parts. Like they just put them together that way. Anyway, the drains were like this and they cast the concrete deck with the clamping ring and domes on the drains. And that's not the right sequence. You've got to be able to waterproof it before the clamping ring is on. And it makes, you can't install the detail as drawn when they've cast this into the concrete deck. And this guy on this job site was a real piece of work. And he was being the superintendent. The main guy was being awful about this. And we spent like the whole day arguing about whether or not they had to chip the concrete out or whatever. It was terrible. And I called a colleague and explained the situation to him. And he was like, why are you even wasting my time with this? Tell them to chip it out and move. This is a non-ish, like there's only one right answer to this, but he was so convincing. He was so like, you're asking me to amputate three of my fingers. Like, there has to be another solution. Why are you being so unreasonable? And by the way, when they chipped it, we, I, we ended up settling on it. We had, the, I said, well, why don't we just do one and we'll see how that works and we'll just see it on one. And it, it took them, not only did it take them like no time to do the one, it took like an hour to do all of the drains on the plaza deck. We, like, we'd argued about it all day for something that took one hour. It was such a waste. Anyway, my point with this is that if either you have a good technical understanding to begin with, and if you've got a 
kind of a bank of colleagues that you can call for reinforcements when you don't equips you to deal with that kind of stuff that inevitably comes up a whole lot better. So you know how forceful to be, when to compromise, when to not compromise. Like, you know where you are on that scale of, is this decision risky? Is this not risky? Is this guy so adamant in his disagreement because he's right and I'm unreasonable? Or is he being adamant because he's a jerk? And it turned out he was just a jerk. (laughs) And he really was a jerk. He was, uh, I'm pretty sure that was his last um, job. (laughs) But anyway, mostly... I don't work with jerks, but this guy was... It seems like the the other skill set is like listening too, right? It's like the being obviously being confident in your technical ability, but being able to in that moment, which is hard sometimes because it can get heated and it can get like, you know, depending on on the conflict. Well, actually, when you can't, I think that the better technical foundation you have, the better you can listen. Because if you've got a good technical foundation, somebody with a different opinion, it's not a threat to your entire role on the job, your authority, your, if you can properly say, like, I understand this, but if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And this, even though this guy is a jerk, if he's right, because I already have a good technical foundation, I'm already confident in myself. Being wrong about this one thing doesn't kill my soul. It doesn't humiliate me. Even if he wants to humiliate me, I'm not humiliated because I have a good technical foundation and I was asking the right questions before I came up with a, with a solution. It free a better technical foundation frees you to be more open-minded to these types of things rather than, I mean, I guess it depends on what your personality is. you also get people who are smart and then they use their intelligence like a weapon to win. Right. Mm. And sometimes you have to pull rank. You have to say, well, this is not your, with the, and which is ultimately what I would have had to do with this guy if he kept, doubling down on it. So this is not your decision. It's on the drawings this way. You did not install it that way. So go fix it. This is not your call. Now I didn't have to do that ultimately, but anyway. How much would you say it's like on both sides, there's the insecurity potentially that comes from not knowing enough, right? On the individual, the jerk that you described, like the way you describe it, it kind of makes me think, oh, this person is actually doesn't really know much. And they're using the whole like, Oh, like I want to cut my fingers off. Like they're jumping to these conclusions that actually might not be part of like the solution at all. Right. As you highlighted and you pointed out. And so I wonder if so much of conflicts, obviously personality types are abound. There's so many different types, but some of it does come from the insecurities that parties just in a converse in trying to collaborate, they approach it with their own sense of confidence, their own level of security and being able to listen to that too, right? Of whether like, yeah. oh, is this person being a jerk because maybe they don't want to look bad in front of another person? You highlighted that, but I think well, that's a, really a lot of these conversations happen in front in public settings, and that makes the sort of the emotional stakes higher. Yeah. And by the way, I say emotional, and I'm a woman. Women get accused of being really emotional a lot, but yeah. I'll tell you what. I work in a male-dominated profession, as a lot of us do, and I have seldom seen more emotional men than this, the type, the emotion that comes out when you're arguing about technical things. Nobody likes to feel humiliated, and that leads to some really aggressive communication. But yeah, I think that's really true. I think that it's uncomfortable for anybody. I get it all. Every time I post something on Instagram, I will get every single week, every week, I will get at least one often several comments that make me at least initially question what I've done. Like, oh, am I, have I gotten something wrong? 
And it's usually not the whole thing. It's like a sub portion of something like maybe I was wrong about that. And it makes me uncomfortable. Like it's still, even though I know I'm not stupid, even though I know that 90% of what I wrote, even if I got that thing wrong, 90% of the rest of it's right, whatever. And I worry for two reasons. One, I worry because it's a big audience and I don't, I genuinely don't want to mislead other people. I'm setting myself up as a teacher. So I want to be a good steward of that for, in the altruistic sense, I don't want to be wrong because I don't want people to carry that wrong thing as though it were right. But also I don't want to be embarrassed. I really fight that. Everybody fights it. It sucks. And it sucks to be humiliated or feel that way in public. But what I would hate worse (laughs) is to be the kind of person that stays wrong like if I'm wrong, I want to know because I want to be able to correct it and set it right. And as painful as that can be, I'd rather be that kind of person than somebody who's confidently ignorant forever. I mean, the, one of the fears actually is that my Instagram account gets bigger is that people see the credential of a lot of followers as its own, the follower count being its own credential or its own whatever level of believableness it lends a certain expertise to what I say and that consequently people would not point it out if they see something that's inconsistent with their experience or their understanding Mm. of first principles. And because I've got a big following that they don't point it out, Uh, I need them to point it out. I want them to point it out. How good we are as a community depends on being able to have honest conversations. So part of that is you've got to suck it up and open yourself up to criticism and don't let it destroy your self-worth because the criticism is that it leads you to something more valuable anyway. Anyway, as you advance in your career, that happens less and less. And my hope is that people can use this, the Instagram page, my classes and the discussion on the Instagram too, that that can get them. Essentially it gives people experience faster so that they can gain. And also they're gaining experience in a form that's not on a job site in front of their boss in front of their client. That's nice. At first, Instagram was really great for me because the audience was relatively small. So I was like, well, I'd rather make a mistake in front of 200 people or in front of 20 people on Instagram than in front of 200 people live. And now it's like the opposite. Or It's like, uh, I'd rather make the mistake in front of the 200 people that nobody recorded than put it on my Instagram page. But anyway, that's maybe a, a different discussion. But yeah, I think having an opportunity to discuss things as professionals and hash them out pros and cons and what kind of factors are important in decision-making and being able to talk about that at a professional level makes us a lot better. And if we can get over that fear of embarrassment and not embarrass each other either, but like that's sort of part of the responsibility, right? You need to be brave yourself and also don't dismiss other people as being awful, which happens a lot in architecture, right? Like we do this where you see it a lot goes in, a lot of decision makers go into a whole bunch of design and it's really easy to say, well, that's ugly or that part of it. I can't believe that they would do the balcony in that way. I mean, it just, what an affront to my architectural sensibilities. But on my project, if someone is offended by something I've done, it's like, well, you got to understand the client really wanted this. We had a really tight budget. We like, anyway, let's extend the same contextual courtesies to other people that we expect for ourselves. Yeah. The constraints don't don't apply to other people. They only apply to you, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Anyway. 
Just a thought. Yeah. How about someone's broken the interesting subject of this is an Easter egg to anyone who doesn't know. I discovered late into learning about Building Science Bike Club, late into following Christine Williamson, that it turns out that her father is a Building Science legend himself, who I had actually heard about before because of Matt Reisinger. Oh, funny, uh, but, yeah. but when I connected the dots, I could not believe it, but it made perfect sense because you've got like older generation legend and legend in the making of this newer generation. So someone is asking, are there any building science approaches that you and your father disagree on or have different opinions on? Oh, okay. So speaking about embarrassing stuff, like I wish I could remember what the actual example was, but I was telling my husband the other day, we were, what was it about? Maybe it'll come to me. But I was talking with my dad who was doing something else. Like he only had a few minutes to talk to me and then he was getting on a plane and I got off the phone and I was like, oh, darn it. And my husband was like, what? I said, well, I disagree with my dad about something. And he was like, well, that's not that bad. It sounds like the disagreement is more about professional judgment than an actual technical thing or whatever. And I was like, no, if we disagree, it usually means I'm wrong, <laughs> but I don't know why yet. So yes, we disagree on some things. What's interesting about building science, I think, is that even though it has science in the name, there is a lot of room for disagreement because what it is that we're really actually engaged in is not science. What we're engaged in is architecture. And we use building science as a tool to help us make decisions about performance and risk. And we use the science to decide how to contend among a lot of different values that are competing values sometimes, but they're all good values. Most of the time, I mean, sometimes I guess people do things for nefarious ends, but a lot of times, um, like making the best use of your resources is a good thing. So you have to decide among all of these good things that I value, what's the most appropriate use of resources. And that, that doesn't have a black or no question, or that's not a black or no, a yes or no thing, a black or white thing. It's, there's a lot of nuance in this and how we weigh these competing values is not clear everywhere. The difficulty in that, I think, comes from my dad is really contractor focused. He was a contractor when he was quite a bit younger too. And so he can throw labor at something and solve a problem with interesting, like in the field adjustments. He favors those approaches. And I'm on the design side and say, I don't have control over what goes on in the field. So if I can design my way out of that problem, even if it costs more money, it's a better proposition for a lot of architects. So an example now that now actually it was kind of about this thing anyway, but my dad has long contended that it actually isn't that hard to keep a, a drainage space behind masonry, behind brick veneers keeping that clear of mortar droppings is not that hard. He says, it's not that hard. We do it all the time. It's ludicrous that people complain about this. This is not hard, is what he says. And I say, no, if your masonry cavity is only one inch, just use a drainage mat and don't, so that you on the design side don't have to police this part of the installation. And my dad is like, that's just a waste. Now I'm kind of simplifying his position and simplifying my own, but I'm sure he would acknowledge trade-offs. But stuff like that, he favors the contractor approach and I favor the less risky design approach. The other way that we're really different is that he's more experienced and older 
in the profession. So he has a much greater sense of nuance with stuff. So he's willing to take risks that I would not take because I'm, I don't have the same confidence level, the same experience I have. So I'm naturally going to be more conservative than he is with his recommendations. And then I think also like I value consistency a lot more in that he's kind of okay with being the expert and being asked for like to consider every single case on its own merits. And you handle exceptions to the rule as they come up. And I'm a lot more interested in coming up with things that apply to most situations and are maybe not the most efficient approach in the exceptions, but they still work because I view consistency as its own risk reduction strategy. Anyway, so he's more flexible with that. I'm a little bit more rigid, Eh. which is funny because you would think like someone who's older is maybe less flexible and more like, no, 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 you have to do it this way when really he's more experienced. So it gives him more freedom, I think, to make different judgment calls. Anyway, for people who don't know, my dad's name is Joe Stebrick, and he is the principal at Building Science Corporation, which has a fantastic website with lots and lots of free articles. If you did nothing but read one article a week from Building Science Corporation's website, you would be in a great position and you would be, I hope, entertained as well. That's a great plug. I wonder if part of it's because you mentioned that your dad being in on the contractor side, there's just so much of that kind of like figuring it out potentially as you go along, edge cases that yeah, might yeah. come up in time. Versus you as the architect, you're like trying to figure out the standard in a way. Yeah, we don't want to wing it. We want to know that this is going to work out in advance. This has been a really great conversation. I do want to open it up to the audience that we have. If there's any questions that people have, feel free to use the Q&A section to ask some questions, or you can also use the chat. I'll bring up some questions that I've received too. Like people are curious to know how you organize or develop a library of assemblies. Um, I, I guess you don't. Okay. <laughs> I just drive. I mean, I have them all. They're not even filed. We were talking earlier. I don't think the official podcast had started or the recording webinar had started, but I'm so terrible with it. I use a drawing program and I'm like, have I drawn this before? I'll just look at all of my details every for every part of the building enclosure until I find one. I'm going to have to come up with a better system anyway. Your Instagram could be that too. You just like tag it different things maybe. Could be <laughs> oh, maybe I should organized. do that, yeah. <laughs> there is a question about Oh, there's Morris. a... Yeah. So a few people have been asking leading up to this about the whole question of should you draw more or should you draw less? You actually answered this earlier, but we hadn't started the recording. So maybe you could go back to that question. Like lots of people asking about liability and where's that line and to what degree should we draw? So I think a lot of times when people ask that question, it's already sort of an indication that we're thinking of the problem in the wrong way. In that it is true that for architects, the deliverable, our deliverable is the drawing, not the building. But what we're really engaged in is designing a building that actually for real gets built. So our premise needs to be, what do I need to communicate to facilitate that process, to realize the design intent, not producing a quota of drawings? So if we look at the details as a means to an end, not an end in and of themselves, I think that has us look at things a little bit more appropriately and that can help guide you in determining, well, how much detail do you need to provide? And it's 
really like, am I, what are my performance objectives in this particular setting? What's my budget? What's my tolerance for risk in this? And do the details reflect that? Am I communicating how this should function and be constructed to the contractor to a degree that it can actually be built this way? As opposed to, well, if I draw too much, I don't want to be on the, I don't want to be on the hook. Like, what is your design intent? We're supposed to have one. So what is it? And is that being fairly communicated in the contract documents? That's the first thing. Second thing that I think is a little tricky with that question is that what kind of person do you want to be in how you manage risk? And my philosophy on this, and it's not everybody has this philosophy, is the best way to avoid risk is to not end up with a problem. To not have a building that fails is the number one way of reducing risk. It's not. So that's the main goal. And then secondarily, it's, okay, am I following the right procedure, contractual procedure? Have I engaged the right consultants? Whatever. Do I have insurance? Those matter. Like that stuff matters. But I think a lot of times other people approach this, like their strategy is, well, it's already, I guess, reactive. It's like in the event of a failure, I want to be able to deny that I had a hand in it. And I recognize that people use that strategy, not just in architecture and all kinds of stuff, but I dislike it. I think that we're professionals and we should take responsibility for our profession. And if we don't, we we lose an important part of the profession. We give it to other people. Like, do you want to be engaged in architecture or do you want to delegate that? Do you want to be a broker and engage and seed that ground to the contractor? Maybe you do, but that would be a real shame, I think. So Anyway, that's how I resolve that tension is I ask myself, is what is my intent with respect to prefer? And that's actually the hardest part. I think the reason people have this argument over how much to draw or not to draw is because they're uncomfortable with what precedes that, which is what is my intent? I'm not really sure what it should be. How should I be handling what, like what, how do my systems manage water, manage air, manage energy? And because they don't have the answer or a coherent framework for thinking about those questions, then they're debating like how many details are on a sheet or not. And that's not the real issue. It's how well do I actually understand this myself? And that's really what I try to do for people. And I, I think in doing it, people have responded so well that I, I realized how many people have really struggled with this before is that nobody's given work before for thinking about this stuff. Like, and once you have the framework, it's not that hard to, I mean, it is hard, I, that's, but it's not, um, it's not overwhelming to work out these performance related things, but that comes first. And I guess this goes back to Chris, your other comment or the comment we received on Instagram, which was about, I forget now, anyway, whatever. Yes. <laughs> We have another question. If there's a WP consultant on board, whose liability is it if there's an issue? The architect, the consultant, how do you mitigate this liability? Nobody ends up being really, I mean, so there's what's the actual answer and then what practically speaking ends up happening. And so two things happen. One, the owner is always hung out to dry. They're never made whole by this. Even with insurance, even with manufacturing, like the owner always suffers and everybody else also always suffers nobody fares okay in this. And consultants have kind of a genius role in this where everything's like, well, this is just for your consideration. I mean, I'm just saying, just saying, just you have to decide. 
So the architect ends up holding the bag for a lot of this stuff. And then ultimately the owner, whether you've had a consultant or not. And that's how it actually ends up playing out. Warranties typically don't help that much either. It ends up always being the the architect and the owner, I think, unfortunately. Even if you can get some of those losses, you can kind of take the edge off of them with insurance. It ends up being uncomfortable for everybody. I want to fit in here because we're closing in at the end about you as a teacher and in terms of education. Your father's also an educator. So coming from a family of good teaching, how should architectural education be updated to better prepare future architects for the technical complexities of the profession? I really don't know. Um, I think that's a really great discussion. And I am sort of endlessly interested in hearing what my colleagues in the profession think about that. I think there's obviously some changes that can be made and formally, and then a lot of informal changes that are just happening anyway. I think that I don't lament too much that building science isn't really taught in architecture school in that, not that I'd obviously, I really like it, but from a practical perspective, this stuff wouldn't make sense to me as a student. I just, it wouldn't make any sense. None, zero. I don't, I think it would be of limited benefit to address like the entirety of this problem for students. In the field, I think, I don't know, maybe a more sort of universal acknowledgement of the apprenticeship model, a more explicit acknowledgement that this is really pretty hard stuff and that it's your responsibility to continue as a professional to continue to learn and to be in charge of your own education. And it's hard. I think we've seeded that ground maybe a little bit too much to manufacturers in our corner of the profession where we sort of expect manufacturers to draw our details sometimes and teach us through silly lunch and learn type stuff. And some of that is better than others, right? There's some really great materials manufacturers that do a really wonderful job of advancing our profession by doing research and publishing the research. And there's some great sales reps who know their products inside and out and can enhance our understanding. But I think that that we maybe rely too much on that and not enough on more self-driven education. But honestly, I don't, those are my thoughts on it. And of course, I always like, I like the stuff that I'm good at and that I enjoy. Like everybody should invest in and taking a class from me, but of course, but I do think that there's room for us to, I think this is something that makes a lot of us really uncomfortable. That a lack of technical competence makes a lot, a lot, a lot of people, whether they're newer in the profession or older in the profession, it is a source of discomfort. And I would like to see us resolve that discomfort in a productive way because nobody likes to feel like that. So I hope that they can, I can help with that on yeah. Instagram and, and more formally elsewhere. You said how the very first question that you answered for yourself in public was about defining what flashing is. What are maybe the first couple lessons, maybe you do this already in your online course, like the first details to really understand that build the basic foundation for when you you just move into this different era in your career where you, you get it, you're starting to get it, and you're, you're really building momentum. I think understanding the, um, I start my classes with a sort of, when the course that I do, the comprehensive course that I do, I start with like an understanding of what first, like we have to, at the base level, we have to understand what it is we're trying to achieve. So I really draw a distinction between understanding what the control layers are there to do as opposed to under, like saying we need these things. And I think we approach it kind of backwards because you start, you graduate from school and you're, you're working on a building right away. So you're like, well, I need the air barrier. Well, do you need the air barrier? 
or do you need a comfortable interior environment? When you understand the function kind of behind this stuff, like what building science is for first, the rest of it, you can build a framework for understanding the rest of it. So I kind of liken it to learning a language where you can memorize a bunch of sentences in a foreign language before going on vacation, like where are the bathrooms, whatever, stuff like that. And that will be helpful for you on your trip. But if you learn the grammar and get comfortable with that, you can actually begin to express original thought. And after you have that grammar, now you're just expanding your vocabulary and you'll spend your whole career expanding your vocabulary and producing all kinds of original, wonderful things. But you've got to start with the grammar first. So it's not any one detail that I think people need to begin with, but learning about from at least a building science perspective, not from an architectural perspective overall, but we treat the enclosure as an environmental separator. So we want to create a particular kind of environment on the inside that differs from the environment outside. And we need certain materials to be able to achieve that end. That's one thing we need to do. And then the second thing we need to do is to do that in a way that doesn't damage the materials themselves. So we have to create our interior, number one, create a, the desired interior environment. And number two, do it in a way that doesn't actually harm what it is we're building with. And if you can kind of keep that straight, everything else falls from there. Like you don't need a vapor barrier for the sake of having a vapor barrier. What you're doing is you need to pick materials and align them in a way that doesn't cause your walls to rot. So it's, if you understand like what it is, where you're trying to go with this, it helps kind of put everything else in perspective. So that's where I start with people, but it's not, it actually is not that hard. Like the framework is not, I mean, this profession is hard. You can spend your whole career figuring this stuff out. And some people focus only on the science part and are never bored, but the basic framework is not out of reach for even practitioners who are only mildly, who want to understand this just to the extent uh, it doesn't give them joy to do this part. They just need to know it well enough to not get sued. That's okay. That can be your level of interest. You don't have to devote that much to it, but if you can establish that framework, it lets you focus on the parts that you like. Not to be too self-promoting in this, but the class I do that uh, that for money, not the Instagram for free that are sort of bite-sized lessons, but I cover building science, I believe, comprehensively in about 10 hours. And that I really think those 10 hours, you invest the 10 hours, pretty much cover what you need to know to get by in the profession. And I certainly hope that if you have, you develop a lifelong love, everybody develops a lifelong love of building science, that would be great. And you can explore and enjoy that stuff. But it doesn't take that much to get the framework and to get that kind of confidence that allows you to be open-minded. And base, if you have a basic competence and confidence that you are competent in that basic sense, it lets you not only be more creative with your designs, right? Because if you're, you lack that technical skill, you have to be more conservative. You have to do what you did before. You can't stretch as much, but anyway, so you get to be more creative and you get to be more open-minded because you know where the, you've got a framework. You're not just winging it. And that's what I hope to really leave people with. Cause a lot of times they're just uncomfortable with that missing part of their, their foundation is missing, but nobody's told them that 
it's okay. Nobody taught you this. So just get it and you'll be okay. Anyway. There's also something to be said that sometimes architectural education, it's actually, you know, not everybody that goes into it is actually super really interested in how buildings come together. They might be interested in like the bigger questions that, that architecture addresses, whether societal or whatever, and that ends up being their route. So I think that it's more that we probably do a disservice to the industry does a disservice to students by making, making it seem as though like, this is the journey that you need to take sort of right. Like versus that, like, actually it's a great foundational education, almost like the liberal arts, like uh, the, the best liberal arts education you can get. And that it's okay that there's other paths available oh, yeah. and you can supplement with these type of what's things. awesome about our industry is that it is so broad right like the building especially if we go even beyond architecture just to the building industry as a whole there's so much room for so much creativity in what an individual's path or role can be it's really cool and it requires problem solving and creativity and leadership and all kinds of all kinds of other skills so there's a lot of fun stuff fun raw materials that we have to work with. So in the interest of time, I do, I, I almost hate the fact that we have to end this. Hi, Amy Baker. Sorry. I'm uh, maybe, maybe she's already gone. I but, keep trying to beat her. Follow her on Instagram, by the way, Amy Baker architect. She's fantastic. Oh, you might want her as a guest. Oh, she's still, still here. Yeah. She's fantastic. She's a specification writer. Oh, oh she's so great. She's so great. Okay. <laughs> we, we have Chris. Now we know who else should be invited. Yeah. Um, schedule it. But I did, because we're recording this, so we can go a little bit longer. We'll follow up with an email for those that have to jump, okay, off. jump off. But I did have, Two questions. One is, I know because you're focused, the format in which you do Building Science Club Fight Club is really fascinating. I'm curious, do you see there an opportunity to be a Building Science Fight Club for another topic that you haven't seen out there, but you would be like, it might be outside of your core interest? Ah, but like within, but within architecture? Within architecture, just another yeah. topic that would benefit from the way that you have curated Building Science Fight Club. I mean, maybe with, I always, I'm personally interested in this and I have very little understanding of it, but from a development standpoint, how, mm. how projects are financed, I think very cool. is really interesting and how they, particularly larger projects where you've got like equity partnerships that get made and then, because mm. uh, that stuff ends up really, it actually does influence the design in that, I mean, it influences the whole approach. Some of the players that raise the money for what we're doing for them. Like the building is almost incidental. Some of them like where it's, they're just, they view what they do as being their investors. 10 years. They're not engaged and yeah. And that affects like how they deal with risk in particular. I care a lot about risk. So how they conceive of risk is very interesting because they're parsing that a little differently. So for them, they're evaluating different kinds of risk, like financial risk, like what if interest rates change? What if the labor market changes? What if we have tariffs on steel now? What like how does that change? And there's that whole world is. I mean, I, I've gotten little windows into it that I find very interesting. But for them, technical failure, which is all I deal with. Hmm. I mean, but that for them is like a, a tiny part of what they do. I'd like to know more about the rest of it. I also think there's some there's people who are really good at that and people who are terrible at it. And it would be interesting to watch that play out by people who are good at that to sort of see what what a really good developer has to say about how they run their business and how that translates to success and, and beautiful environments. 
Um, I love, I love anyway, that. I know, it's, it's like, cool. it's like uh, I just imagine your drawings, but like performance, they're just like Excel uh, snapshots of Excel <laughs> with like diagrams on top of them or like, Oh my you know, gosh. Yeah. Like, that's funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, like red, redlining it. Yeah. That's great. And then we like to always end with one final question, which is it's more personal. Basically the question is what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh my gosh. Uh, so I have to say that's a hard question to answer because people have been, I think, I feel like I've had an entire life characterized by generosity of other people being generous to me with their time and their insight and their knowledge. It's been really, I feel so, I'm acutely aware of that and reminded of it all the time when I post on um, on Instagram on technical topics because it of course, my name is the name that's attached to it, but I didn't invent building science and everything I write has been something that someone else has taught me. Everything, a hundred percent of it. There's very little original thought in my, in my thing. I mean, maybe not very, very little, but, yeah. um, but the foundation, none of the foundation is not mine. So that's all, all of that. Those are dozens of people have invested in every single post I've done and their name isn't on it, but their name is on it in my heart anyway. Yeah, I think I think I only have a general answer. I'd have to think about it a little a little more and not be like on a recording. <laughs> somebody asked me once, somebody one of these sort of closing questions was I think it was what a favorite book was or something, and I couldn't think of something offhand and my husband's a writer. Anyway, not good to not to be like I don't know. And then I flippantly was like I guess the Bible. So tear I mean anyway, so I will leave you only with a general comment, a general answer to avoid being dismissive of very, very important things. <laughs> I mean, I think that was a great answer. So uh, I really appreciate the time you've taken with us and as well with all of our attendees that have been able to join. This has been a great conversation. We could have probably been here for more hours, but yeah, so for those, this this will be distributed. And I'd just like to plug for a minute Monograph, which is both where Chris and I work. So essentially, Monograph is a practice operations tool that helps you understand your budgets in real time, helps you track uh, and forecast how products are doing, and uh, helps you resource also on projects in any given moment. So yeah, check it out at monograph.io. Thank you so much, Christine. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. I so hope we cool. do this um, maybe later. You'll, you'd consider hosting when it's safe for everybody. You'd consider hosting uh, live events and we can actually share a beer and interact. I, the comments were so great throughout. It would be nice to actually, no. I mean, because we all have something to, we're practicing professionals. So the format makes this a three-way conversation, but it's a more interesting conversation when there's more of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Hopefully, who knows? Yes. End of year, next early. We'll see. I hope so. I hope so. Knock on wood. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Thank you. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.